0: Good morning. Let's uh, be finding our seats again. So glad everyone is here. So let me open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to go into the message. So God, we just are so grateful for your goodness to us as we've sung. We're so grateful for your presence. We're so grateful, God, that you're continually working in our lives. And this morning, Jesus, we thank you for your eternal word. Lord, it's like a two-edged sword cuts between the marrow and the bone and discerns the intentions of the heart. So, Lord, would you just touch our hearts this morning through, Father God, just the preaching of the word. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to the book of Obadiah. It's a little book towards the end of the Old Testament. As we shared with you, you know how to locate where the Old Testament prophets are, particularly the minor ones, because they represent the last 12 books, um, in the Old Testament. And uh, as I've done each time now that we've shared, I give us this little chart to just help us catch our bearings and to understand where it is that Obadiah is within the larger framework of the Bible. And uh, we have made a point to say that it's really important for us to understand when we go through the history of the Bible that we understand that there is a northern kingdom and that there's a southern kingdom. And when we read the writings of the prophets, what we see is these prophets are speaking to those specific uh, geographical areas. What happened was that there was a united monarchy that began with Saul and went through David and Solomon, but because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom was broken into two. And so the last (coughs) few weeks, we've already covered um, the prophets from the northern kingdom, which is Hosea and Amos. And last week, I covered Joel. So today, we are now looking at the prophet Obadiah. And uh, he is, according to traditional dating of the book, it makes him the first minor prophet to speak to Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And uh, we find in Obadiah that it's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. So for those of you that feel overwhelmed about reading your Bible and Leviticus is so long and Psalms is so long. Encourage yourself by going to Obadiah, read 21 verses and say, I did it. I read an entire book in the Bible. So um, it's a very compact book and you don't even have to turn a page to read the entire message. Now with regards to who he is as a prophet, uh, we basically know very little about Obadiah. So the message that we read stands purely on its own prophetic merit. We have no biographical details to connect to the prophecy. We just read his words and let its weight have its effect on us. Now being the shortest book, besides being the shortest book in the Old Testament, it's also the first written prophetic book. So as you can see here, up to this time, all the prophets' ministry were all verbal. But then the Holy Spirit began to inspire the prophets to start writing down their prophecies so that it would be a record that could be studied. By the people of God. Now, the fact that Obadiah's word um, was first did not mean that it did not have great authority. And we see that several of the prophets that came after him affirmed Obadiah's word or expanded upon it. We see Joel and Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They all refer back to this word that was begun by him. To further underscore the importance of his ministry, he prophesied at the same time as Elisha. So Obadiah was down here in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, Elisha right here had his ministry going. And of course, we know Elisha is famous for being the successor to Elijah. And Elisha, if it could be, had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. If you were to study the life of Elijah, you would see that he had seven major miracles, including calling down fire, raising people from the dead. If you study the life of Elisha, because of his double anointing, he had 14 major miracles. So we're talking about giants in the faith, and Obadiah's ministry was happening at the same time that Elisha was ministering to the northern kingdom. So he was in great company, and he was also lauded by his prophetic brothers. So what is the message of Obadiah in this little book? It's simply this, he called out the tribe of Edom. So here's a little map. Here's Judah, southern, Israel in the northern, and here's Edom. So Obadiah called out the tribe of Edom and said, you have acted treacherously against your brother. Therefore, as a people, you will be no more. And so these words are given to us in verse 10 and in verse 18. And we see that he said here to Edom, because of your violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. And then a few verses down in verse 18, he said there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. So we see here that Obadiah's word was unequivocal, there would be no more second chances. There was no pleas to return to God. The window of recovery had passed. So this is one of the distinctives of Obadiah's word. You read the other prophets, and there is this judgment that comes, but there's also this invitation to return to God and to get back right with him. We don't hear any of that with Obadiah. All the chances that God had given Edom were passed, and so for, therefore the window of recovery had passed. Edom's fate was sealed. Jeremiah echoed this in chapter 49, and he said, all the towns in Edom will be in ruin forever. So why did God bring such a harsh word? Why did God bring such a strong word and said, that's it? You're going to be done as a people. What was Edom's treachery against his brother? Well, to answer that question, it's important for us to remember Edom's lineage and where he came from. Edom is not just a pagan tribe, it's in fact a Jewish tribe. When you look at this map here, you can see that Israel and Judah was surrounded by all these pagan nations. Moab, Ammon, Damascus, the Philistines, from where Goliath came. But Edom was not a pagan tribe, it was actually a Jewish tribe. And Edom is actually the same name as Esau. So in Genesis 36, the Bible says that Esau is Edom and Edom is Esau. In other words, their names are interchangeable, like Robert and Bob or Thomas and Tom. So whenever you see or whenever you read Edom or Esau, they're the same person. Now, what's the significance of Esau? Why is he famous? Well, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Did you know there are twins in the Bible? It's kind of cool. So Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, and Jacob was one of the three main patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob was the father of the 12 sons that would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau was the older brother of Jacob because when the twins were born, Esau was the first one to come out of the womb. And as he came out, the Bible describes that Esau was hairy and red. And the parents named him Esau because Edom means red. So that was kind of his nickname, either Esau or Edom. And he was described as a man's man, a hunter of game, a man of the field, whereas Jacob was peaceful, living, in tents, and a great cook. So Joseph, I mean Jacob was domestic and Esau was a woodsman. So they were very opposite. But this helps us to understand the relationship between between Esau and Jacob, and why God brought such a strong word, because they were blood brothers. And the way that Esau acted towards Jacob was very, very unbecoming. It's one thing for a stranger to commit a crime against another stranger. It's another thing for a brother to commit a crime against a brother. It doesn't very ha- happen very often, but when it does, it just opens your eyes and you go, what's going on here? And this is what Obadiah was speaking to. And Edom did several things against his brother that were unthinkable. The first thing that he did was that when Israel was coming out of Egypt and marching towards the promised land, Egypt would be down here. And when Moses delivered them, a million people were marching through the desert down here. And they were going to come up. And if you remember our series from Joshua, they were going to be parked here right at the River Jordan and they would cross over. Well, they had to pass through this land right here. And who lives in this area? But Edom, or Esau, their brother. So Moses goes to them and said, listen, we know we got a lot of people. This is the quickest way to get to the promised land. We won't steal your sheep. We won't even drink any water from your wells. We'll just stay on the highway. We won't go to the left or to the right. Is it all right if we go through your territory? Inexplicably, Edom says, absolutely not. And they're like, Listen, literally, we're not going to do anything. If we take anything, we'll pay for it. And Edom said, no. So that was the first offense that began happening. Edom closed his heart to his brothers. His actions to deny them passage through their territory was a cold-hearted and uncaring move, and it was sin. They blew it big time. They couldn't find a little act of hospitality in their heart. But that was just the beginning of Edom's hatred against Jacob. And it would get progressively worse. After Israel settled in the promised land, Esau openly fought against Israel. So not only did they try to prevent them from getting to the promised land, after Israel settled into the promised land, Edom kept attacking them. So when we go back to this chart again, We see here, of course, Saul began the whole um, kingship. And the Bible says that as Saul was settling in to his rulership, he had to fight against enemies on his side, on all sides. Moab, Ammon, the Philistines, and who's in that list? Edom. His own brother was coming against him. His own brother was part and parcel of the pagan nations that were fighting and creating trouble for the nation of Israel. Now this pattern continued on because what happened is that Edom continued to resist all the other kings that came after him. And so we're talking, if you look at the timeline, a period of 500 years where Edom continued to resist and be hostile and to revolt against the kings. We have this little verse in the book of 2 Kings where it says, In the time of Jehoram. Now, Jehoram was one of the kings right here during Obadiah's reign. And by the way, if you see the black, that means they were a bad king. But the scripture says in 2 Kings that in the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion. So instead of having his brothers back, Edom was constantly striving against his brother. First of all, don't go into the promised land, and then when you're in the promised land, I'm going to continue to make trouble for you. So God is looking down from heaven. He sees these two brothers and their relationship, and he's deeply grieved at what Esau is doing. But then the last straw came, and this is what Obadiah speaks to. Verse 10 and 11, the prophet says, And he's speaking to Edom, because of your violence to your brother, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah, In the day of their destruction, yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. So in verse 11 there, we're given the key idea. Judah was settled there. Jerusalem was their capital. They were constantly under attack. And when foreign nations came to plunder and to defeat the Israelites, they were doing it right there in the backyard of Edom, as we saw geographically. They could have gone to their brother's aid, they could have sent in supplies, they could have fortified them, they could have helped them, but that's not what Edom did. Edom did nothing to help. And to add insult to injury, Edom actually watched in delight as his brother was run over. So that'd be like watching your parents get robbed on the street and not doing anything. Or seeing your sister get assaulted or violated and not intervening. It was that despicable. So no wonder God's wrath was stirred deeply. Ezekiel would later on add to that and said to Esau, as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate. Esau was rejoicing over the fact that his brother was going through such trial. God said, I'm going to make you desolate as well. God's judgment on this kind of behavior was warranted because it's grievous on so many levels. Proverbs 24 says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. You know, it's just human nature to sort of privately say, oh yeah, they deserve that. I'm so glad that that happened to them. But God sees from heaven and he doesn't like it when we we have those little mocking attitudes inside our hearts. So Proverbs 24 says, do not Rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad. But here, Esau was doing the very thing. Now, pagans aren't even supposed to do this, let alone blood brothers. And so when God saw the attitude of Esau's heart, he was very upset and very angry. Edom had committed a double sin, not to mention the fact that he failed at being his brother's keepers, which is one of the fundamental roles of family loyalty. So when Edom reveled in his brother's demise, he basically signed his own death papers. God's judgment was at hand, and this is what Obadiah prophesied. Now when you study more, some of the the prose and and the poetry and the, the force behind Obadiah's word, it's just powerful. I really encourage you when you read the Bible to not speed through it, to not go through it too fast, but to just slowly think and ponder. One of the reasons why the Bible is considered such great literature is because of the the soaring writings and the soaring poetry that's given to us. And we get a taste of this when we read some of these verses from Obadiah. Again, he's speaking to Esau. He's speaking about the inescapable judgment that's to come upon them. It says, though you soar like the eagle, and made your nest among stars. From there, I will bring you down. You know, eagles build their nests in places that no one can reach. And so you're thinking, I'm untouchable. But God says, it doesn't matter. I'm going to bring you down from your high place. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? So he's basically saying, listen, when a robber goes into your house, a thief goes into your house, they do it quickly. They're just searching for the jewels, and they're just searching for the money. But he's saying, listen, I'm going to send thieves. I'm going to send robbers and plunder you in everything, and your house is going to be taken. Every grape is going to be stripped from the vine. Hence, he says in verse 6, how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged verse 3, Obadiah says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So part of Esau's haughtiness was the actual geography that they lived in. They lived in a, a really fortified canyon. They lived in high places. And so Esau speaks to this. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Now this phrase here, you live in the cleft of the rock, refers to this geographical area that Edom lived in called Mount Seir. It's one of the highest mountains, ranges south of the Dead Sea. And the capital of this area is called Selah, which today is known as Petra. So, has anyone been to Petra or Jordan? Literally, This is where Edom used to live. And these structures that we see, and I just pulled this picture. When you go there, it is absolutely stunning to see the height, the strength, the the monstrosity of these structures. And, And you study this, you can see at the bottom of the picture just how little and minuscule each person looks compared to these cliffs and compared to these fortresses that were built right into the rock. This is where Edom lived. That's why they said... There's no one that can come to defeat us. It's amazing that we can actually go to the place where the Bible talks about. Now, Petra is now categorized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of its grandeur. But this area around Petra is where biblical Edom lived. It's why they felt so secure and untouchable. But not to God. Because God said, I will overthrow you, and it will be permanent. Now, shortly after Jesus' time, we know that Esau, as a people, in fact, became extinct. They were no more. So when you look at the history of Esau, from the time that he was born with his brother Jacob to the time that he vanished as a tribe, that was a 2,000-year period. Esau, whose very father was Isaac and whose grandfather was Abraham, was never heard of again. So Obadiah's word came to pass. In just 21 verses, Obadiah spoke to this span of 2,000 years of history. It's amazing, isn't it, how much can be packed into one prophecy. It shows you the power of a prophetic word. But in this powerful book is also a powerful gospel message. And where do we find the gospel code? That's why we've named our series, The Gospel According to the Minor Prophets. Every book of the Bible has a hidden treasure. And we can go treasure hunting because there's signals that God sends out, foreshadows, types in which God is speaking to us about the ultimate revelation, which was his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what's so fun about studying these Old Testament prophets and these minor prophets is that it's like unlocking a vault and saying, okay, where's the treasure? And so where is the Bible code hidden in this little book? So where's the gospel code in Obadiah? Well, Hebrews 12 begins to unpack it for us. Paul says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it, many become defiled. Now, that's a standalone statement. Don't let bitterness get into your life, because if it gets into your life, it's like a cancer, and it will spread. It will not only spread in your own heart, in your own life, but the attitude will start leaking out. You'll start infecting other people around you, and many people will be defiled. That's a standalone principle statement. But then, Paul lists an example. And who is that example? We read in verse 16, see to it that no one becomes like who? Esau. Obadiah was speaking all about Esau. See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So what is Hebrews 12 referring to? What is this tears that Esau was shedding? Well, if you go back to Genesis 25, it tells us the story of how Esau sold his birthright as firstborn to Jacob, his younger twin brother. How did it come about? kind of a, a comical scene, but it's a sad scene. Esau, being the hunter, would go onto the fields to find game. He'd get all exercised and very hungry. And the Bible says that once when Jacob was cooking a stew, you can imagine Esau approaching the tents and just the waft of the stew was hitting him. And he was so hungry. And he was famished, the scripture says. And so Esau came to his younger brother and said, let me eat some of that red stuff. There's that word red again, Edom. For I am famished. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. So Jacob saw an opportunity to get the blessing that his brother had. I mean, this is how attractive and how much and how coveted it was to have the blessing of the firstborn. So Jacob saw an opportunity to get that. And so he negotiates this deal. said, okay, I'll give you some of my stew. If you will sell me, give to me your birthright in exchange. And Esau said, I'm about to die. For what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Esau, without any regard for the the blessing that God gave him, sold it for a bowl of lentil soup. That's like selling your firstborn rights for a plate of spaghetti or a rack of ribs. It was a terrible mistake and a picture of his horrible regard for God's hand on his life. So the years pass. Isaac, their dad, he's getting old. He's ready to pass on the blessing And Jacob steals the firstborn blessing from Esau by dressing up like his older brother in hairy garments. So at this time, Isaac cannot see very well, but he wants to bless his sons. And the only way he can tell whose son is who is by touching them. Jacob was a smooth-skinned man. Esau was a hairy-skinned man. And so he said, I want to bless you, Esau. Go get me some game. And while Esau is off getting some game, His mom, Rebekah, says to Jacob, your dad is about to bless with the firstborn inheritance. Quickly dress up like Esau. So she put on all the hunter's clothes that Esau would normally have. He goes into the room to see his dad, and his dad says, it sounds like you, Jacob. And Jacob says, no, I'm, I'm Esau. So Isaac says, come near. And as he comes near, he He lays off hold of him and feels the hairy garments and says, yeah, it's Esau. And then he blesses him with the firstborn inheritance. Shortly thereafter, Esau comes in, sees his dad, and he finds out that Esau has already blessed Jacob. And so when Esau finds this out, he is grief-stricken. And the scripture says this, Esau cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry. Said to his father, Bless me, me also, Father. I mean, he's pleading. Have you only one blessing, Father? Bless me, me also. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. What, Esau? All of a sudden, you now are understanding of what you gave up, and now you're regretting. You should have had more common sense and wisdom prior, and there was not another blessing. Esau sold his birthright, and it passed to Jacob. It wasn't his dad's fault. It was his. Proverbs says that a man's way makes his own ruin, but his heart rages against God. Isn't it funny how we can do things, we can make big mistakes, and all of a sudden, we blame God. Our heart rages against him. Why did you let this happen? Why is this happening to me? And bitterness enters our heart. When all along, it was our fault and not God's. But that's the key word in this passage. Esau cried out with an exceedingly bitter cry. And that's the key word because it describes the long arc of Esau's life. He was now infected and his life was marked by bitterness. And this became the distinguishing mark of Esau, his tribe, his lineage. From that point on, he always warred against war. Against Jacob. Why did he do all these things? Why did he prevent Israel from going into the promised land? Why did he come against them when they were settled in the promised land? And why did he laugh over his brother? Because it was bitterness that was entrenched in his heart. and He never let it go. That's the motivating force behind Esau, which led to Obadiah's prophecy against him. He passed on that bitterness to his sons, and his sons passed it on to their sons, and it became a generational trait. Bitterness destroys. Bitterness leads to all manner of sin. Jealousy, rage, murder, revenge, animosity, anger, lashing out. Bitterness not only takes over your life, it defiles many people around you. That's what Hebrew 12 says. You can't keep that attitude stuffed in. It just comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You have bitterness in here, it's gonna come out of your mouth. Ma, ma. This and that, this and that. Cantankerous, grouchy, complaining. The world is dark, everything's against me, and it spreads. In Esau's case, it spread to his entire tribe. His entire lineage became defiled. And that's shown by the historical actions that we just reviewed. Now, out of this mess, Isaiah prophesies something incredible. So 100 years later, after Obadiah has given him this word, Isaiah says this in chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom? Great question. Edom is a desert place. It's a bad place with a terrible history. It's a well of bitterness. But Isaiah prophesies and he asks this question Who is this who comes from Edom? And you're thinking, I don't know. It's not going to be a good person. But then he goes on to say that this person will come with garments of glowing colors from Basra. What's Basra? Basra is the name of a city, and it's where the kings of Edom lived. That was where the royal palaces were. That was where the strongholds were. And so Isaiah is, someone is going to come forth from Edom, and they're going to come forth from the city of Basra with garments of glowing colors. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, if you understood what was going on with Esau, you go, can this be true? What is Isaiah saying? Is it possible that someone from Edom brings salvation? And the answer, indeed, it is possible. And that person is Jesus. So we go to Matthew 27. is how we connect the dots. As Jesus is going to the cross, he's been tried, condemned to death. We read here that when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They gave him, that is Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So Jesus was about to face the horror of his life, and they offered him a wine drink mixed with gall. What is gall? It's an ingredient made of bile, and it looks greenish in color, and its taste is bitter. So they served him this drink, and Jesus would have nothing to do with it. He would not drink the cup of bitterness. He would not allow even a drop of it into his body, no matter how much his body craved it. He refused to be overtaken by darkness. He would not allow bitterness to comfort him, to fuel his rage, his sense of anger and resentment, and the unspeakable unfairness that was befalling him. That's probably the thing that creates bitterness the most in our life, when something unfair or unjust happens to us. I gave you this, but you gave me only that. I did this, but you didn't return my kindness. I put in this much time, but you weren't grateful. Now you multiply that by a million, billion, trillion times and all the injustice that was piled on to Jesus, he had every right to be bitter and to be resentful but he would not drink the cup of bitterness. Instead of bitterness, he chose love. He acted in the opposite spirit. He could have easily given into the resentment, given all that was happening to him, but he would not go there. A savior was coming out of Edom, just like Isaiah prophesied. This is crazy, insane stuff. This is a powerful picture of the gospel. Like Esau, we've been tempted or beset by bitterness. Or maybe we're in bitterness right now. Things that we've held on for years or even decades. Why do we ask the question when people are about to pass, like, have you made amends with people? Have you made it right? because it's human nature to hold on to resentment. It's human nature to hold on to bitterness. I'll tell you one personal story. I had an uncle that went through a very, very sad and acrimonious divorce with his wife. They were literally enemies for decades. And my uncle-in-law fell into a coma And he just hung on and hung on and hung on and did not die. And my dad realized why he was hanging on. So he went to his sister who was married to my uncle-in-law. and said, your husband, whom you've divorced for all these decades, is hanging on because he needs to make amends with you. If you have it in your heart, you need to go to the hospital and tell him you release him. And my dad prevailed on his sister. She went to the hospital. He was in a coma, as is her husband. She spoke into his ear, not knowing if he heard anything. One day later, he passed away. Bitterness can be so entrenched in us. It's such a part of who we are with coping, and yet it's a cancer to us. And maybe you're in bitterness right now. Well, Jesus had the same feelings at us, but he didn't give into it. He would not drink the cup. Now, unfortunately, Esau did, and look what happened. It led to destruction. It did him no good. Bitterness leads to death. But Edom does not have to have the last say. Jesus can. We overcome and we let go of bitterness by seeing how God has forgiven us. When we look at the cross, we have no excuse for holding on because God has released us. God has forgiven us. When we look at Christ, we can forgive and we can let go because Jesus first forgave us. That's where the power comes, to live in love. See what God has done for us so that we can do it for others. And when you do that, you conquer Edom. You fulfill what Jesus did in Isaiah chapter 63. You come forth with garments of glowing colors, not drab, not dark, not gray. You come forth bursting with life and bursting with colors. And this is a picture that harkens back to Genesis 37 when Jacob gave his son a multicolored tunic, bursting with color, which is a picture of God's blessing and favor upon our lives. When you get right with God, you begin to flourish. You march forth in strength. You walk in righteousness. Basra, the city where the kings of Edom live, the strongholds, they don't rule over you anymore. Calvary does. And therefore, you're clothed in majesty. This is a gospel that comes straight from Obadiah. 21 verses. Amazing. Amazing. You know, this week was filled with a lot of breaking headlines around the globe. Coronavirus dominating all the headlines. is scrambling to just keep this thing under control. People are dying. They've built hospitals for thousands of people in just 10 days. Kobe Bryant died last week in a helicopter accident just last Sunday. Brexit was finalized this week. A peace plan was proposed for the Arabs and the Jews. President Trump was going through an impeachment trial. Now last week I spoke on Joel and the whole picture of locusts. Right now going on in Kenya is the worst locust infestation in 70 years. These swarms are so large it's by 60 by 60 kilometers, which is three times the size of Toronto. There are so many locusts in the swarm, they calculate 200 billion, that these locusts consume as much food as 90 million people daily. Canada is 35 million people. So we're talking one swarm consuming three times the food supply of all of Canada in one day. If God wants to get our attention, he knows how to do it. But what do all these things tell us? The virus, Kobe's death, Brexit, peace plan for Middle East. Life is uncertain. Life is precious. Kobe was at the height of his life. An amazing platform of athletic accomplishment and now he's gonna be an entrepreneur and a great dad. Gone the next day. Maybe you're in the Middle East and you're an Arab and you're thinking, oh, there's a peace plan that's coming out. We're finally gonna have our own Palestinian state. But wait a minute details of this plan, that's not what we want. Your hope goes up and then it gets dashed. Maybe you're from England and you voted against Brexit. You don't want to detach from the European Union. Or maybe you voted for Brexit and you're very, very excited. You're uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. We can't put our trust in policies. We can't put our trust in politics. We don't know what will happen to us tomorrow. The Bible says that God is shaking the heavens and the earth. He knows how to get our attention. The whole reason he does it, to shake our comfort zones, to shake our security, is so that we will look up and say what is really important in life. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, but we can and must watch over the condition of our hearts today. And we cannot, like Edom, allow bitterness to take root. We don't want our lives to end in bitterness. We want it to end in love. Father, we look to you right now. I ask, Father God, for your grace to pour into our hearts that we would not be stuck in bitterness, that we would not feel justified, as reasonable as it may be, for our unforgiveness towards someone. We ask God that you would give us a spirit of revelation of the forgiveness that you have given to us that we can turn around and forgive others. This morning, if you are feeling a tug from the Holy Spirit, that's the grace of God that is coming to you right now. And I encourage you to respond and to take concrete actions to pray to God and say, I forgive that person or to call that person up, or to write that person, or to meet them face-to-face and say, I need to make some things right with you. You cannot allow bitterness to be destructive in your life. You need to say no to it and allow Jesus to rule. Father, we thank you for this word that comes from Obadiah. Such a short little message, but packed with such power and such life. So we give thanks to you now. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.